Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, we look at the U.S. military's peer adversaries from a free markets perspective. Are defense budgets bloated by threat inflation? RCD contributor John Waters and I speak with John Tamney, a frequent commentator on financial markets and the economy and the editor at Real Clear Markets, the vice president at the small government advocacy group FreedomWorks, and the author most recently of The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Sets the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. John Tamney, uh, welcome to Hot Wash, and thanks for joining John Sorensen and me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me back on. I'm impressed after you suffered me for the for the college. So uh, I'm thrilled to be here, to be one of the Johns. I feel like I'm in the in crowd. That's absolutely right. And for today's conversation, we have two big categories we want to talk through. The first is Russia. The second is China. So to start with on Russia, December 5th, today, as it happens, is the beginning of a roughly $60 per barrel price cap on oil. Uh, It seems there are at least two objectives to this. The first is to keep oil flowing through global markets, and the second, uh, potentially to limit Moscow's oil revenues and help defund this war in Ukraine. John Tamney, what is the net effect of this measure on the war? Uh, The net effect is more evidence of just how hopelessly clueless the political class is about basic economics. Uh, hey, Johns, um, I want to buy a Ferrari, but I just want to pay 10000 So let's put a cap on Ferraris and go and go buy them for that amount. Does anyone think that this $60 barrel means anything to Russia? Uh, oil's a global market. They're going to sell uh, at a market price. Uh, EU nations will claim that they're only going to pay 60 in which case they'll still pay the market price. They'll just buy Russian oil from those the Russians sell to who don't live on another planet. Yes. And so China and India have already said they will not participate. Other Asian nations uh, may not participate either. Is, is what you're saying that this is a half measure? Yeah. It, it's it's just, what do they call it nowadays? It's performative. It's just, it's an attempt to show the world that they're doing something when they're not. And, uh, this will achieve nothing. It's It just it vandalizes basic economics. Let's call it what it is. I want to broaden the conversation into sanctions more generally, uh, but one of the, the, the question marks is if a sanction fatigue, we've been implementing sanctions against Russia for several months now. Uh, do you see this as a sign of sanction fatigue from the West? I hope so, or I hope better yet, it's a sign that sanctions don't work. You know, markets always speak their peace. Uh, we can cut off trade with Russia, but we'll still be trading with the Russians. Simply, we'll be trading through intermediaries. Uh, iPhones will still be bought and used in Russia. Uh, probably caviar will still make its way to the United States. Uh, my fatigue is with why is it that government always gets to grow? Why is it that its activities always get to grow in response to what other countries do that we don't like. Um, I, I find it all very bothersome. And you've written about this extensively, that national security has become a justification for expansion of government spending and expansion of government's footprint. Uh, you, you've written this specifically about TikTok, and we'll get there. Uh, but hanging with sanctions for a moment, an oil embargo such as this is a negative sanction. 
uh, Lend-Lease, like providing material to Ukraine to fight this war, which we've been doing since May, is a sort of positive sanction. Uh, looking back, have you seen effectiveness from either one of these measures in your economic prism, uh, understanding that you're not a national security commentator or expert? Uh, certainly, I haven't seen anything uh, with the negative sanctions that has ever worked. Uh, as as when we when we had our conversation, uh, to this day, there's this myth that OPEC was a, actually able to cause oil prices to rise in the United States with its embargo. No, it wasn't. We still purchased OPEC oil. We just purchased it from those they sold it to. The reason prices rose back in the 70s was that all commodities were rising as a consequence of a falling dollar. And so this notion that we can cut off the flow of goods and services to their highest uses is belied by history over and over and over again. Uh, in terms of the other stuff, in, in terms of uh, Lend-Lease, I find myself as a non-foreign policy expert, and let's be very clear, I know nothing. I find myself wondering, are the Ukrainian people better off because they basically the, the pushback was funded? Has that preserved more of the country or is more of the country being bombed to smithereens because there's an actual war going on that would have ended quite a long time ago? I also find myself wondering about the Russian people. Are they better off? Did they choose this war? Uh, how many disposable Russians have died because American money um, has elongated the war? And, and I, I say this as someone who gets weepy-eyed about the United States. I'm not anti-American. I just, it worries me that some of our interventions don't just harm the people that are supposed to help and harm the people, harm the Russians, harm the Ukrainians, and certainly harm us. And it's a fair point to raise about the civilians involved in this, both in Ukraine and in Russia, because sanctions target civilians, they affect civilians. The point of sanctions in this instance, I don't know if it's been clearly articulated, uh, but originally they were meant as a form of deterrence uh, and they target primarily the civilian population in order to affect that deterrence. They're meant to quarantine a country uh, from commerce, stop the factories, starve the inflow of resources, such that a country can't get credit, make its assets useless, stigmatize it. Uh, and I wonder if you've seen that last thing at all, stigmatization. Money talks even if it doesn't tell the truth, John. Has there been a global response shunning or stigmatizing Russia? Uh, sure, there has been, but it comes from a political class that doesn't have a lot of uh, credibility. Let me be clear. I, I think the way that Russia has gone about this is really backwards. Um, if you wanted to get Ukraine, why not trade with it? Uh, trade is the ultimate foreign policy. It's the ultimate en enriching device of, of all involved. And so uh, what a primitive way of going about uh, getting Ukraine by actually bombing it or invading it, uh, trying to acquire it. Um, but I still don't like that the U.S. is involved here. Um, I think probably Vladimir Putin has been discredited in this, but is that a good thing? Uh, does this does it put us more at risk of him doing something really drastic precisely because he's been discredited by what is in a sense been a proxy war with the United States? What if the U.S. had done nothing? Something tells me that not nearly as many Russian troops would have died, but also not nearly as many Ukrainian troops. And would we all be better off? And that's that's what I keep wondering. 
And so you say, John, that you're worried for America in its engagement against Russia inside of Ukraine. And many Americans would say, well, they're, they're worried for democracy. Uh, they're worried for Europe. They think it's essential to engage in Ukraine to push back against Putin and against international aggression and a violation of international law and norms. Uh, why are you concerned for America about our engagement? Well, I'm just always worried if we don't give Putin a way out, does he do something drastic of the nuclear variety that could potentially harm us? Or does he do something drastic in Europe that could potentially force our hand that draws us in? So that worries me. It also worries me in, in the broad sense of, you know, why? Um, why when we're involving ourselves in this way, uh, what's the end point to it? Um, and, and why is it that every time someone else does something that we don't like, why does American blood and treasure have to be put on the line? <clears throat> I, 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 I find that uh, worrisome. What do you suppose is the long term effect through the winter of the sanctions regime on Russia and on Europe secondarily? We, we, we suspect uh, although the data is not good, we should know that Russia is in a recession. Uh, what do you expect are the consequences over the next, say, three to six months for Europe and Russia? My sense is that they're vastly overstated. We keep hearing about how it's going to be a cold winter for Europe and Ukraine. I'm not buying that. Uh, again, goods and services generally find their their use, that they, they find their way to those who need them. Um, to me, war by its very name is a recession because it's killing off customers, but it's also killing off the very human beings who drive all progress. So the fact that guns are being shot is the surest sign. It's interesting, though, uh, economists will generally say that war is stimulative. Uh, they claim to this day the horrifyingly obtuse uh, belief that World War II ended the Great Depression in the United States. I can't think of a more dangerously wrong viewpoint, but that's what economists believe. They think that just building things causes growth. And so <clears throat> some will, of course, say that this has all been stimulative for Europe because it it, it drove it, it all this money flowed in from the U.S. and other places to defend. Um, I don't think so. And, you know, I'll just add the other thing. If you go back to the old Soviet Union, I never visited, but I knew people who did. And their response when they saw it was that the Soviet Union didn't have the economy to pose a threat to the United States. Uh, wars are expensive. And so you look at this now, uh, as we discussed when we had our conversation a ways back, uh, total Russian debt total is 190 billion. What does that tell us? It tells us that, that Russia still doesn't have the economy to pose a warring threat to the world. And so what does its acquisition of Ukraine have to, why, why would that cause us to fear greater acquisitions? I, I don't get the, the correlation. I'm curious about your point that war is not stimulative. You, you said moments ago that some economic economists believe that war can stimulate economies. And it seems to many of us that that was one of the lessons learned out of World War II. We'd been through a long depression. Many people were ready for something, ready for a war even. And they came home after the war to prosperity, to a higher standard of living, to a higher GDP. Uh, tell me that. Tell me how war is not stimulative to the economy. Because how? Because by definition, economic growth is born of the division of labor. 
yet war exterminates the very hands that divide up work on the way to immense growth and productivity. Uh, presumably, when we're growing, when we're running a business, we want customers. Well, war kills off customers. Uh, as opposed to building wealth, war destroys wealth. Uh, we build armaments that, yes, they cost money, but what would we have built if government weren't spending all that money on armaments? What, what businesses would have started? What great minds in Europe can we talk about the six million Jewish people exterminated? How many geniuses died needless? died. And so where, how rich would Europe be today? How rich would the United States be today if instead of all that death and destruction, people had been working together? Now, people say, yeah, the, we were, the, the economy in the U.S. was slow in the 1930s and it was booming after the war, but that's a misunderstanding of what happened. In the 1930s, by the end of them, the, work, the New Deal was discredited. It, it wasn't working. And so the fact that it stopped, ceased working, the fact that it basically ended in the late 1930s is what enabled the growth of the U.S. economy that enabled the fighting of the war. Government spending follows economic growth. It doesn't drive it. To pretend that it, that it follows economic growth is to pretend that, that you, I can reach into your pockets and steal $20 each and go spend it and grow the economy. You know, you'd be $20 poor. But war makes us even poorer because it kills off the people who drive growth. Uh, what drove the prosperity post-war is that the New Deal was over with. And better yet, all that human capital that was being wasted around the world, killing people and being killed, was back on U.S. soil producing. And so by definition, war is the depression. It's the destruction of, of the people who drive growth. It's horrifying that just about every economist believes that, that, growth, that war is stimulative. And I think smart people owe it, to the, owe it to the world to discredit what makes no sense. And is this point something that frames your thinking as we shift away from Russia and talk for a minute about China? Uh, you've written quite a bit recently attacking the, the argument that TikTok is ripping off data or that TikTok is a national security threat. Uh, and amid news today that Apple is moving iPhone supply chains out of China due to political and business risks. John, what concerns you as you look at the U.S. relationship with China? What concerns me is that there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, and people say, oh, well, you're just about money and everything. No, I'm not. To go to China is to see people who are conducting a passionate love affair with all things American. Uh, are there some bad actors? Are there bad leaders in China? Yeah, probably. Let's, let's agree that some of them are really bad. But it doesn't change the fact that, that we have a real opportunity to trade with China buy things from them as they are buying things from us. Apple sells a fifth of its iPhones there. GM sells more cars in China than it does in North America. Uh, there are 4,100 Starbucks in China on the way to 7,000, on the way to tens of thousands. It's the largest market for McDonald's and Nike, not the United States. The list goes on and on. And so what's important about this is the reason China is such a large market for U.S. goods is because we're such a large market for their goods. And every day that becomes truer, the more expensive war for China with the United States becomes. And so let's, let's work alongside, let's freely trade with China precisely because we don't want to go to war with them. And the more that we're producing with one another, 
the much less likely war is going to be just because it would be so devastating for the economy of both countries. And so we're leaving out any discussion of the hypersonic missile gap, any discussion of fleet sizes, military strength, comparing wills to fight. We're kind of verging out of traditional defense or security terrain to talk more on economics and administration. But John, one of your your consistent points in your writing is that government is incompetent always and everywhere. I think that's how you've written it. Is this kind of the foundation for your thinking about why folks should discount the alleged threat posed by TikTok, for instance? Well, I would say I would say discounted even if it were true, because I don't see why government is always the victor anytime anytime something is perceived as a threat, in this case, TikTok. But as I pointed out in my column about it, uh, late Senator Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan wanted to shut down the CIA after the collapse of the Soviet Union, simply because the CIA spent untold amounts of money, not seeing what anyone who ever visited the Soviet Union clearly saw, that the country was a paper tiger. It didn't stand a chance against us. Anyone with eyes could see that it was a destroyed country with no economy to represent a threat to us in a warring sense. Yet the CIA did all that it did only to not find, only to not find this out, only to, to tell politicians that in fact, Russia's economy could compete with us, that they were a, a competitor militarily. And so, yes, we saw in the Cold War just how incompetent government could be. And so in this case, supposedly China is using TikTok to spy on us. TikTok is something that two thirds of American teenagers spend a lot of time on. Well, what would they get? Uh, furthermore, if they can spy on us, if you're spying on everyone, you're spying on no one. What is this information? that the Chinese are going to acquire allegedly through TikTok. After which, if it's such a fear, well then just make it so that government employees can't use TikTok. Why is it that Americans broadly always have to lose their freedom every time some business is perceived as a threat? And let's be clear, we wouldn't be talking about TikTok unless it wasn't beating up on US businesses. People, Americans spend a lot more time on TikTok than they do Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, go down the list. This is protectionism. This isn't about national security. TikTok is cleaning the clock of many of Americans, uh, many of the top US uh, technology companies. And so we're naturally seeing this response that, oh yeah, they're a national security threat. Oh, please. Now, John, you you make that argument in your columns at Real Clear Markets, but you, you don't have access to the full spectrum of information folks in the government would have. And it is the government's role to safeguard the public when it has access to privileged information. So we don't know what that data could be exploited for, and perhaps it is a benefit to Americans to swear off TikTok. You say otherwise, though. What does the competition between TikTok and American social media bear out? Well, the comp so far the competition says that TikTok's winning. Um, I the number that that I cited. I think people Americans who are on TikTok spend ninety six minutes a day there, and it's something like twenty four for Facebook. Um, maybe somewhere less for Instagram. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. And so, but let's assume that that government is onto something that, oh yeah, in fact, the Chinese are spying. Okay, well, again, what does that mean? 
assuming they're spying on us, we know that back during the Cold War, when the CIA clearly had the most resources at its disposal of any country by far, I mean, not even close, they did a lot of spying and a lot of good it got them. Uh, they were utterly clueless to the looming failure of a country that was failing before our eyes, that a country that does not allow for the profit motive clearly doesn't pose a military threat or real, realistically any kind of threat. And so what is it? What's of information could the Chinese get from this? And if so, it's time for government to come clean. It's not enough for them to take our freedom. Tell us what it is that they're fearful of. A fair point. Now, the foundation for the disagreement, uh, some of the economic conflict with China, is that China has yet to provide America with access to its market, uh, that it's been manipulating the value of its currency to maximize trade and investment. And these arguments go back to the Obama administration. All America did was demand more transparency and better access uh, for American firms. Um, but you say the U.S. has little to gain from confronting China and a lot to gain from collaborating with China. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the first part about how America doesn't have access to its markets, for one, there's nothing about growth in the Constitution. There is stuff about freedom in there. I don't see the government's role in opening opening up Chinese markets to U.S. companies. But as anyone who's ever been to China knows, it's a huge market for U.S. companies and it grows by the day. And so this idea that we're shut off to them belies basic visual common sense to go visit China is to see American plenty everywhere. But it also ignores the why of why people, the Chinese aren't producing so that they can be poor. They're producing so that they can be live like we do. And so the more that they produce, the more that they're importing so, so very much of American plenty. So the closed market argument is laughable. As far as the currency argument, so the Chinese logically pegged their currency, the yuan to the dollar, the dollar being the world's currency, the currency that factors into just about all global trade, what country wouldn't do that? And that's not manipulating a currency. Look, the reality is for the longest time, the US dollar was pegged to the price of gold. Was that manipulation? No, it's just an acknowledgement that money is sole purpose is to circulate goods. And so we wanted the dollar to have price stability. And so within that, much of the world had its currencies pegged to the dollar to get that similar stability? Were they manipulating? Were they trying to gain a trade advantage? How would you try to gain a trade advantage in the first place? By all reasonable thought processes, those who import the most are the most the ones most advantaged. Because see, in my case, if suddenly you told me, oh wait, they're taking advantage of you, John, it's time for you to start building the, the house that you live in sewing the clothes that you wear, growing the food that you eat, uh, manufacturing the computer that you type on. In my case, I would die very a very quick and very slow and very painful death. But thanks to imports, I get to focus on what I do best. So, so there's this notion out there that we're harmed by imports. Imports by their very description describe a country being strengthened. And so if the Chinese really hate us or are trying to hurt us, they have a very odd way of showing it. If they wanted to hurt us, they wouldn't export to us at all. That is what would really harm the U.S. economy. 
when they export to us, they are growing the U.S. economy because they're allowing the American people to specialize. And we're talking to John Tammany, editor of Real Clear Markets. John, you're all about dividing up the labor across the world in the most efficient and uh, way possible to maximize opportunities and benefits uh, for Americans specifically, but others as well. And so I want to finish this point about China with a question, and that is, in your mind, how much of a danger to China's economy is military conflict or the prospect of military conflict with the United States? Uh, how much of a danger? It would be devastating for China's economy. Because as Americans keep pointing out, the Chinese keep sending us cheap goods. You know, you know how they're trying to harm us by sending us cheap goods as though that could possibly harm us? Well, what if they're shooting guns at us? What if they are bombing our cities? Do you think that would cause, limit the ability of the American people to import? I think so. War is by its very name impoverishing. Uh, so if the Chinese go to war with us, it's going to destroy the very economy that its people are trying to build right now, which is why I'm so intent against a lot of criticism on reminding people that the single best, most peaceful foreign policy mankind ever came up with, and it's a costless one, it's in fact one that improves us daily, is, is open markets. And it doesn't matter what the Chinese do. If they want to harm their people by limiting American plenty, well, let them do it. But let's not injure our people. Let's not empower our government in the process by doing what, what, what doesn't make sense. So, yes, war would be intensely devastating for the Chinese, as would it be for us. And so let's get away from both of these scenarios to finish this conversation about Russia and China. John Tamney, editor of Real Clear Markets, if it were up to you to reorient American foreign policy, first as it pertains to Russia and second to China, what would you do? What foreign policy would you implement to Russia and second to China? Um, if it were me, I would make clear that the U.S. is about national defense and that we don't have much of an opinion on what goes on in other parts of the world. I would probably say put up billboards in Ukraine or you wouldn't even need billboards anymore. We've got the Internet. All of you who want out, uh, we're, we're takers. We would love to have the world's ambitious including those in Ukraine right here in the United States. And so if the Russians are going to do what is primitive in 13th century, we'll take you any which way we can. Uh, as for China, I would say the same thing. Uh, we're, we're open to all of your people, your incredibly productive, ambitious people. But I would make clear that you know, the U.S. is going to get richer and richer, and we're going to have a remarkable national defense because that's it's the right thing to do. But in concert with that, there's nothing limited government about having troops around the world trying to preserve the world. We I would make clear that as long as our markets are open and we're trading with the rest of the world, the odds of war are going to be much less. And uh, so I, I just I think it's dangerous for us to have a global foreign policy like this. I think it's dangerous for our people, but I think there's potential for it to be dangerous for the rest of the world. But just because government is once again, always and everywhere incompetent, we see it here domestically. Why do we think intervention around the world suddenly makes those who are smartest, those smart who are endlessly dumb domestically? 
And so we'll have to close there. John Tamney, editor of Real Clear Markets, vice president at FreedomWorks. Thanks for offering a markets uh, perspective on foreign policy challenges. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are so nice to do this. Um, uh, I'm flattered to be speaking and being heard by people who know so much more about this than I do. But I, I do think the economic perspective is a, is a worthwhile one. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.